This podcast is presented by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights. Even before this strike, you had a lot of writers who've been very pro-union for a long time, but like, you know, they're calling this hot strike summer, a hot labor summer. And so you saw a lot of blue t-shirts out there at the hotels. You saw a lot of blue t-shirts out there when, when UPS was fighting for their contract. Even today, there's uh, blue t-shirts out there with Kaiser. So I, I think you're seeing a lot of people who write film and TV for a living getting bit with that labor bug. And it, it is time for solidarity. Welcome to Black Work Talk, the podcast voice of Black workers, leaders, activists, and intellectuals exploring connections between race, capitalism, labor, and culture in the struggle for democratic, progressive governing power. I'm your host, Bianca Cunningham. And I'm your co-host, Jamala Rogers. On this episode, I'll be joined by Writers Guild of America members and co-founders of the Think Tank for Inclusion and Equity, Angela Harvey and Tawal Panyakosit Jr., to discuss what was won in their new contract after nearly five months on strike and more. So on future episodes of Black Work Talk, we're going to spend a lot of time in conversation with folks already involved in organized labor. These are the activists and organizers. But we also know that there are new and upcoming emerging leaders in this field. And so from time to time, we are going to talk about how you can organize better in your area. So this is where my co-host Bianca will come and periodically give segments that we like to call Organizing 101. Bianca. Thanks, Jamala. So we're talking about building a committee today. So after you've spoken to your coworkers and identified issues that you all care about together, the next step would be to form a committee. Now, there's a couple things to think about when you want to build a committee. Obviously, you've had conversations with people who you trust most, won't go back to management um, and repeat the conversation, and also people who you probably are guessing are going to be pro-union along with you. And so you've got a small cluster of folks ideally two to three people who you can brainstorm with. When you start brainstorming with them about how to expand, you want to think about a couple things. Number one, you want to build a committee that's representative of your workplace. So that can mean as far as uh, race and ethnicity. It can mean um, as far as age. It can mean things as far as job title. You want to have a representative committee. So you want to ideally think about where there are blocks of people or simulators that people have and try to recruit based on that. It also could be geography-based, meaning if you all are not in the same workplace, you might want to have representation from the different work sites or places that do exist within your unit. So building a strong inside organizing committee is critical to the majority support that you'll need to establish a union. Like I said, ideally, these are leaders in their own right of certain categories. Also, the number of workers on the committee should be at least 10% of the workforce. So, Jamala, I'm just thinking when I had my own experience of building um, a committee, one of the things I was looking for, which ways can we activate the organic leaders? So I had some folks who are really well-respected because they were really great at their job and they made great numbers. We worked off a commission. They always had really big commission checks for great salespeople. We wanted to make sure that those people were represented so that we wouldn't be named lazy or be named as something that's for people who were underachieving at work. We also wanted to get You know, on the other end of the spectrum, people who had been struggling meeting certain goals because we know that their voices were also going to be important in the whole conversation. Addition to that, I also picked people who, you know, were more cheerleaders. So we needed people who had like positive words to share, um, could be motivational speakers. I myself was not necessarily that person. I had different quieter strengths. So it's just about thinking about how we can add and put together something that looks and will speak for 
all of the workers um, who we want to unionize with. So, Bianca, while you were talking, it made me think about when I was doing union organizing and you talked about the different roles that people had. Well, I was pretty well known. And so me going into a specific area to talk about union and where we could meet up and, you know, the benefits of the union was not going to work because I had a big target on my back. So that's when we looked at, you know, sort of low key workers who, you know, were uh, not seen as rebel rousers and they were able to quietly go in to talk people uh, about the union and to get signatures on those cards in a very surreptitious way. So it did take me back to some of those days. But I think, you know, when you look at the role of phones, uh, where you could actually text somebody in terms of what to do or who's so, somebody's coming, <laughs> you know, you got you got a lot of technology now that I definitely didn't have when when we were doing our u- union organizing. Yeah, I, that's a good point. I think the other thing with like built, like trying to figure out the committee, it's like this weird space because you're not in a public space where you can talk openly necessarily about the union, meaning you haven't filed right at the NLRB, but you are trying to expand past the, like the immediate trusted circle. And so there's like kind of these murky waters, right? We have to be most careful. A lot of people who talk about unionizing probably only get about to this step where they're trying to you know, expand a little bit because this is where you uh, run the risk of somebody ratting you out, right? Mm-hmm. To management and then your whole thing is blown up. And so, yeah, it's like thinking about what type of people that you want to have on the committee, but it can't be everybody who is exactly like you because you're not most times, right? Representative of the whole entire committee. And, and so you have to like take some chances there. But I would say the most, you know, like the things to remember are that like, there are all types of organic leaders in their own right. But honestly, like the definition of a leader is just somebody who's respected and somebody who has followers, right? And so it's like, if somebody will follow them, if somebody will listen to them, if somebody will respect them, then you know they're going to be important to engage um, and figure out how to bring into the work if you're, if it's if possible. Yeah, I think the other thing is really uh, making sure that people who are going to be part of such committee understand the kind of support that they have both inside the, the, you know, the, the work area and outside, because what they're doing is in fact jeopardizing their job and in fact jeopardizing their livelihood. So there's a lot of scared people when you start these campaigns, like, you know, what if, what if, what if, and if you don't have a union, you know, and in, in the state where I am, the state of Missouri, you are hired at will and you are fired at will. So people are very, very aware of that. And it's always this uh, cloud that ha- hangs over people's heads. Like if I do this, I can summarily be fired with no uh, rationale or reason. And so I think when people know that there's strength in numbers behind them uh, and that they're getting adequate training about how to do this, how to do that, how, when not to talk about the union, um, because you've laid that out quite clearly that you need to be on your own time when all of this union uh, organizing is happening. And sometimes that's where uh, enthusiastic uh, leaders get into trouble. Uh, And so, yeah, I think, you know, just that level of support and training that they'll need in order to navigate through those uh, workplaces, uh, wherever they're trying to organize. Yeah, that's a good point. So they're not in a public place necessarily having filed. Mm. However, I do want to stress to people who may be new to these concepts, you are protected under the law to organize as a committee member. And so while you may not want to yell it from the rooftops and let everybody in your, you know, workplace know what's going on yet, especially people you don't trust, you also are need to be like explicit in some sort of documentation that you're part of a committee. So should you get targeted, you have some protections um, to show that you were illegally fired. Yeah, knowing the laws that protect you are important. Sometimes they may not count, but still you need to know them. As we're recording this episode in early October 2023, members of the Writers Guild of America are voting to approve their new contract, which was negotiated after 146 days on strike. 
the second largest strike in Hollywood history. The new contract includes wins on some of the most pressing issues they were fighting for, including most specifically standards around use of AI for producing content and handling of residuals in the age of streaming. Joining me today to discuss the contract, the strike, and these shifts in the entertainment industry are... WGA member and co-chair of Think Tank for Inclusion and Equity, Angela Harvey, who has writing credits on MTV's Teen Wolf, Station 19, American Horror Stories, and more. Angela, thanks so much for being here. Of course. Thank you for having me. So excited to get into it. I'm also joined by her WGA colleague and fellow Thai co-chair, Tawal Pena Cosset Jr., who has writing credits on Vampire Academy and upcoming Max series, The Girl on the Bus. Tawal, thanks for joining us as well. I'm really excited to get into it. Thank you. Happy to be here. Great. So let's just get into, yeah, everybody's been hearing about this strike. So I just first, like, I'm really interested in the evolution of writers in the Working Guild of America and their contracts. I mean, I think, like, just personally, like, this strike had, like, it seems like much more like coverage um, in social media because the age of social media, but also just much more like working class support in the court of public opinion, like, I also come from the labor movement. We were all rooting for you all and doing solidarity pickets. But I think that like even my friends who were outside of movement spaces in 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 labor movement were still like paying attention and like also rooting for you all as like, you know, a solidarity, you know, for organized labor. And we know that like that sentiment has just grown. But there's still maybe some listeners who don't have a sense of how the enter- entertainment industry's model for writer employment has changed. And so I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about what that's been like, like the history and like what your experience was in this strike, you know, striking with the public and in your messaging, et cetera. Yeah, it wasn't even necessarily as much that um, our working structure changed as much as it was that the studios were changing their business model and wanting us to go ahead and do business as usual. And uh, that just wasn't going to work. One of the main things that people talked about, one of the main issues was like residuals. And so like when you have a cable model where you're getting paid, the the studios were getting paid for, um, for reuse of our work. And they abandoned that model, Mm -hmm. inexplicably, in my opinion, to go to this subscription model where it felt like there was a dead end. There wasn't as much profitability there. And they, they kind of wanted us to absorb that cost. And that was not acceptable for us. Right. So it was more about like the studios changing the way they do things arbitrarily or for their own benefit without really thinking about the effects that it would have on you all. Right. And they also changed the way that they made content based on that model, like where it used to be that we would make, you would write a show and go and, into production and you're producing as part of your duties. They, because they didn't have the pressure of going to air, they were separating the writing mm. from the producing. And that's, I mean, it makes an inferior product first and foremost, but then it also breaks the pipeline of writer producer. Yeah. I think it's also part of the kind of broader, changes in corporate America. Like, I, you know, I think all those kind of forces in terms of efficiency and increasing profits um, have absolutely come to Hollywood. And I think a lot of both above the line and below the line workers have, are feeling the impact as opposed to the C-suites. You know, I think all those mm-hmm. costs are coming at our expenses. And I think to Angel's point, you know, previously there was kind of this was before my time, you know, I hear about this heyday of like people working on one show over the entire year and writing their episodes, writing multiple episodes, say, and then going to produce their episodes. Um, And thus, you know, there's the pipeline as they're kind of moving up, but also getting important experience. But I think those forces have kind of, they've been trying to kind of chip away at each of these kind of phases and really trying to, do it as cheaply as possible, which, you know, I think is is arguable whether it's been s- successful in terms of creating better content. Um, mm. 
but it's definitely broken the pipeline and less people are being asked to do more without necessarily additional compensation either. Yeah. That makes so much sense. I was just thinking like a couple weeks ago, we were talking about this I, this idea in labor of like manager discretion. And like a lot of people oftentimes think that like employer employee disputes or union disputes are about money when they're really just like about power and discretion to like make a profit. Um, and so and that's at the expense of normally like the members and, you know, the workers themselves. And so that sounds like very similar to me sacrificing a better product, sacrificing, um, you know, something that works for everyone or a system that works for everyone in lieu, you know, for profits um, and for an inferior product as well. Yeah, I think, you know, we've seen so many industries because the music industry went through this. The, you know, journalism has suffered at the hands of this, like, tech influence and venture capital, just, like, churning through industry after industry, just trying to wreak as much money out of it as they can. Whereas, you know, um, people are passionate about what they do. Like, people go into journalism because they're passionate about telling the truthful stories or they come into writing and entertainment because we're passionate about that work. And those things just aren't at the forefront of any of those business minds at this moment. Right, right. So in short, bosses are terrible. Um, but I also want to just talk about like what the reality is for you all. Um, Cause we know that like, all, like you said, all the industries are changing, working people are fighting back, you know, against that, you know, to make sure that they're not left behind. But, like, the attention that unions like Writers Guild of America or SAC-AFTRA receive sometimes, like, even though there was a ton of support, like, in the public um, and, and maybe knowledge about the issues, it also seems like sometimes there can be, like, a little bit, like, dismissal um, because of, like, a few maybe, like, A-list celebrity outliers that have been those unions and people really, like, associate, I think, like, Hollywood or fame with, like, wealth and material security. So can we just talk a little bit about what the reality is? Like, what kind of wages? are members of Writers Guild of America making? I mean, I think, you know, from the outside looking in, one could get a, uh, a warped idea of, of what it truly is without kind of a sense of the realities on the ground. Um, I know, you know, I used to work in, I came from organizing a nonprofit uh, before kind of getting into TV writing. And, you know, the, the pay there isn't great. You know, always. It's most of the time it's not, uh, and I'll tell you the truth. I made more on my first job than I ever did before, but then the reality was that money had to last me for a much longer time as I was pursuing more jobs because I didn't have the security of one job, and so you know it had to afford me the ability to kind of last until I could find my next job, which could be a month, three months, some people go a year, even more between gigs, and then take off the 25% that you're going to, you know, five to your lawyer, 10 to your manager, 10 to your agent. So at the end of the day, that while it looks larger kind of on a day-to-day scale, like the insecurity and instability of the industry almost necessitates that in order to survive at a kind of just normal working threshold. That makes a lot of sense. It, it, it does. I'm going to just kind of come at the thought that is behind that. Like, I've been at this work for over 10 years. So, and so with that comes a lot of experience and, and a, a bigger paycheck. And I'm not going to pretend like I'm a career changer too. I also came out of nonprofits. Mm. So I'm not going to pretend like I'm not making a good living. But... Uh, when I'm working. But I will also kind of challenge the fact that we're looking at that. Like, as workers, we we have a tendency to look at, well, you're making more than me, so you're doing well. What are you complaining about? Yes. Rather than pointing upward. Like, we're not making what the studio bosses are making. And, you know, the nurses or not they're actually not the nurses but the people who are on strike at kaiser right now are not getting paid their worth right but because we need to be looking up this up the ladder at kaiser up the ladder at warner discovery up that's where 
they're holding on the money. Uh, writing for TV and movies is not rocket science for sure, but it is a craft and it does create intellectual property that comes with rights. And yeah. so, yeah, workers make money because the studios make money off of the intellectual property that we generate. I would rather not <laughs> start talking about like, well, you get this and you get that. Like, no. Oh, yeah. Let's look at who's withholding. <laughs> Let's look at where this is really breaking down. Absolutely. Yeah. This is about wealth sharing, right? This is about sharing wealth. You're generating, your work is generating wealth and you're entitled to that wealth, you know, that your labor is creating. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's also part of, that was part of the discussions around residuals, um, yeah. is success-based residuals, right? Because thus far a lot of streaming numbers have been very opaque and the way the first off residuals are awesome. I would not have made it through this strike if not yeah. for residuals. Like literally every time I hit that moment in the strike, I, I check miraculously came through from Vampire Academy and bless because I was so thankful. But, you know, I think in the future, like a lot of these shows to Angel's point are making studios bank and the workers and the creators are not receiving any sort of differential kind of uh, residual in in relation to that and so linking kind of the success that our content is creating for studios and sharing in that wealth um, is literally yeah is only fair yeah that's a that's a good point yeah and i'm so glad that you broke down like the dispute over residuals and like why they're so important i wonder if we can talk about like what were some of the other big wins for you all and the other and the other members the one of the biggest ones that i'm excited about is minimum room size as Tual was saying earlier they're asking fewer and fewer people to share the burden of more and more labor without additional compensation and so and in addition to that, I felt like the pipeline was kind of broken. People were having a harder time getting jobs. So this has always been a difficult industry to break into, but they were just really making it next door to impossible and probably would have gotten much worse as time went on. So even though the minimum numbers are small, at least they exist. They protect the existence of the writer's room, which I think is, is key. And that one hand in hand with AI is not a writer because we could see the writing on the wall that where they wanted to go was have AI generate content and then hire one or two people to rewrite that. And um, that just was not going to work. The guild would not exist. The guild would crumble if that were the case. Yeah, they're literally trying to replace you <laughs> with AI, absolutely. Um, so, like, I, yeah, and that makes me think, too, is, like, we had um, some Teamsters on uh, a couple episodes back, and we were talking about AI for their industry as well. And so I wonder if you feel like like the agreement that you reached in the contract could be, like, a good model for, like, other sectors to, like, follow in trying to, like, fight back against AI taking their jobs. You know, I think only, only time will tell. Um but I agree that it feels like it's a great solid win for writers, for sure. Um, particularly when we're talking about kind of, for folks like us, you know, historically excluded writers, because I do think, you know, one of our um, our communications chair, Danny Tolley, often talks about how, you know, with AI also comes a regurgitation of all these kind of old stereotypes and things that have, been really truly fucking offensive in the past and if with a if ai is working on it it's pulling from all that and just regurgitating it and it's not really going to take us anywhere <laughs> good <laughs> that's yeah absolutely yeah like it's no secret that like writers rooms and production like have historically been like white af right um being led by like white cis men who could afford the education or the have the hollywood insider connections um necessary to get in those rooms I wonder if you can talk about like, cause I think this is like a little bit, I want like uh, touching what you were talking about, Angela, about like the minimums, like is the current model of entertainment writing doing enough to develop in like up and coming black writers and other like non-white or non-wealthy like talents, do you think? Oh, no, nowhere near, nowhere <laughs> near enough. Um, and that's partly why I think Tank for Inclusion and Equity exists. The group that Tawal and I 
our co-chairs have because there really hasn't been that forward thinking. The industry has always thinks pipeline when they think about historically excluded writers. So they create these programs to bring people in from the general public, put them in these programs and get them their start in the writer's room, which is great in theory, but they've been doing this for 30 years. So it takes about eight years to climb the ranks of a writer. So like, where did all those people go? But clearly there's a cultural issue inside the industry that doesn't allow uh, people to get a foothold and, and to climb the ranks. And so you'll see now a lot of those of us who have managed to stick around, you see those people pulling up others. And so that's where we are in the industry at the moment. Hi, this is Caden, the publisher of Convergence Magazine. There are a lot of places that you can put your hard-earned money in support of our movements, but if you're enjoying this show, I hope you'll consider subscribing to Convergence on Patreon. We're a small, independent operation and rely heavily on our readers and listeners like you to support our work. You can join us at patreon.com slash convergencemag. Subscriptions are pay what you can, but at 10 bucks a month, you'll get goodies as well as knowing you're helping to build a better media system one that supports people's movements and fights fascism. And if you can't afford it right now, don't worry. All our shows will be free for you to enjoy. You can also help by leaving us a positive review or sharing this episode with a comrade. Thank you so much for listening. I'm glad that you mentioned the think tank for inclusion and equality. Like we definitely want to give attention to that um, here on Black Work Talk. You're both co-founders of Think Tank for Inclusion and Equality, or TAI. Um, so can you just tell us like a little bit more about what you all do at TAI and like why it's important? Sure. Uh, so Think Tank for Inclusion and Equity. We, I think as Angela kind of mentioned, you know, really formed, I think the way we kind of came together was really through traditional organizing model. You know, we were just having conversations amongst ourselves and started realizing that a lot of kind of the individual experiences that folks were um, encountering were shared across the board with various kind of, you know, the, the, the microaggressions in the room, having to repeat titles, you know, being the only person of color or woman or queer person in the room and having to kind of carry the weight of representing that community to a room that may not necessarily understand it and be receptive to that. And so we kind of got together and started realizing that uh, there was power in coming together and in organizing. And I think a lot of the the hopes were that we could really kind of build power together to advance, you know, historically excluded writers. And really, because I think one of the problems, you know, as Angela mentioned, is that a lot of these kind of fellowships and programs that the industry has spearheaded have brought a lot of folks into the in the doors, but they haven't endured, they haven't succeeded. And one of the things we talk about often in the in the organization at time is you can't expect people to succeed when you're bringing them into a broken system if you don't actually take the time to try and fix the system while you're at it. You're just setting them up to fail. Uh, and so I think the work that we've really taken on is trying to both build power for those coming up to the ranks as well as change the system and find a way to make it, to make a kind of a more, a stronger pipeline through. Yeah. So one of the ways we do it, we do a survey every year just to talk about what's going on out there. What are y'all hearing? Uh, we'd like to say sometimes we started on gossip. <laughs> we get together and like, oh, I'm dealing with this. I'm dealing with this. <laughs> the best organizing is at the bar after. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. And so, you know, you say things and just like in every other space, you know, there's the gaslighting aspect like, oh, I'm so sorry that happened, but that was such an isolated incident. Or, oh, that was just. Mm. And so mm. the survey helps us point to like, no, no, look, it's not just, it's not, wasn't just her, it wasn't just him. This is a thing that's happening. And then the biggest, most important thing I think we do is create community. I think you know, it can be very isolating when you're the only one in a room. So looking out across the industry to all these people who are the only ones in their rooms and bringing them together so that they can have a support system and feel less alone. And I think that's done more to keep people in the pipeline than pretty much anything yeah. else we do. Yeah. 
community is so important. I know that in addition, like Ty also provides like fact sheets for a wider or wide cross section of underrepresented identities in media. I had a chance to look at some of them. They include like great comparisons of overrepresented stories and ones we'd like to see more of. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how do you go about developing like those fact sheets and are there modern examples of media you feel are living up to some of those standards that you're striving for? I just want to shout out that I just, this premiered night before last, but I just watched it last night. My friend Nkechi Okuro Carroll produced a show for NBC called Found. She's got Black woman creator. She brought on a Black woman co-showrunner, Black woman lead, Black woman director of that pilot. It's also just fantastic. It's a great show. So in terms of example, you know, there are, there, there are definitely some successes that are happening and they are um, generally at this point, they are happening from a visionary like, you know, Michaela Cole and I may destroy you or, um, you know, Quinta Brunson is doing great work with Abbott elementary. So there definitely are some successes to tout, but the fact sheet, actually the origin of the fact sheet project came out of our survey. Like one of the things that people said to our survey questions was that they had a difficult time pushing back on problematic storylines because these jobs are so hard to get. And so like, if you're the squeaky wheel, am I going to get, get asked back? Am I going to get another show if I'm the squeaky wheel? And on top of that, if you like, if you're the lowest ranked person in the room and you're supposed to be the squeaky wheel, you got to call out your boss like time and time again. And that does not create goodwill to bring you back. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So the fact she's, they help people to, not, to be like, it's not just me saying it. Look, this group, Think Tank for Inclusion and Equity, they say that we should do this instead, or they say we should think about this differently. So um, that's where the fact sheets came from. And then they they kind of blew up. We've heard about politicians using them. We've heard about journalists using them. So we have a few more coming out uh, soon. Like we're an all-volunteer organization, so I hate to <laughs> <laughs> say it'll be out, but I don't know when it'll be out. It'll be out. But it's in the works. But it's in the works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hearing you talk about, um, you know, the difficulty with like being the squeaky wheel is making me think of like a show I watched recently, The Other Black Girl, um, which mm-hmm. is like the whole storyline is about like what do you do when you, you know, want to don't want to just like assimilate or just get you know get along to get along. But, you know, what do we gain when we see ourselves better represented in entertainment or the stories that we consume? We gain so much. We, when Kamala Harris was sworn in uh, as vice president, remember seeing all those Instagram posts of little girls standing in front of the TV and watching this amazing Black woman getting sworn? There is just no substitute for representation. People see themselves differently. We see ourselves through story, you know, as humans. It's just part of who we are. And so when the story is always about somebody else or something else, you feel excluded. You don't see yourself being the vice president or an astronaut. Or you know, we, we just suppress huge parts of our culture by not allowing everyone to be seen. Yeah. It's like we have locked our imagination and the power to see it is like the power to know that we can also do it. Absolutely. Yeah, I who said it, but you know, like if you see it, you can be it, right? Gina uh, Davis, our friend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but you know, interestingly, the, the other piece of it is also, you know, during my organizing days, I used to knock on doors very often, knock on doors, make calls about marriage equality. Mm. And, you know, it was one conversation at a time, one door at a time. We were slowly persuading and building up support. But at the same time, Will and Grace was on and Modern Family was on and Glee was on. And the reality of the situation was all, no matter how many doors we were knocking on, those shows were actually making more impact than we were on the ground because they were going into people's like homes, into their living rooms and people fell in love with, you know, Jack or Kurt or, you know, we can we can discuss how they all look like a certain way. That's another that's a different story, but <laughs> but it made queer people folks like real to a certain extent and and um and someone you cared about. 
and it's much harder to to pass laws that exclude or target people you care about. Yep. Yeah, I'm thinking of like, you know, you know, like I said, coming from a labor background, started a union, you know, had to do all the fight to win the union, etc. Um, and feeling like every single time I see even an inkling of that type of story being represented, I get so excited and like I come alive because it like in a way validates like the fight that I'm having on the ground every single day. And I mean, it like does seem that Hollywood is like somewhat open to diversity and representation in stories, but only so long as it's not disruptive to like a neoliberal, like class conscious kind of status quo. And so there are like a handful of TV episodes and movies about labor organizing, solidarity or strikes, you know, that I remember from my childhood, you know, in the 90s. But I rarely see like stories about community or labor organizing as a plot point or resolution even um, in those like, you know, stories that we do have representation today. Um, I'm thinking about a couple, you know, standouts. I remember one episode of Empire where they wanted to unionize at the, you know, at the, at the studio. I remember, you know, obviously Sorry to Bother You and Boots Riley, totally like, you know, just communist plot and like really so good. But I wonder like, Is that something, like, we want to see more of? And, like, if so, like, I mean, I know I do. If so, would studios even greenlight, like, those type of stories, do you think? I mean, I think you could get a show like that made today, but it would take a lot of star power. Like, it would would not be easy. But not for lack of trying, I will say. I think that even before this strike, you had a lot of writers who've been very pro-union for a long time, but, like, you know, they're calling this hot strike summer, a hot labor summer. Yes. And so you saw a lot of blue t-shirts out there at the hotels. You saw a lot of blue t-shirts out there when, when UPS was fighting for their contract. Mm-hmm. Even today, there's uh, blue t-shirts out there with Kaiser. So I, I think you're seeing a lot of people who who write film and TV for a living getting bit with that labor bug. And like, it's it is time for solidarity. Whether or not we'll be able to get those shows over the studio line is one thing. Um, I do think, I do think we're going to also see a rise of independent film coming out of this strike. I think okay. we're going to see a lot more. I hope, you know, I guess <laughs> knock on wood, that we're going to see some independent projects gaining traction. So maybe on that front, we'll see some more of that. Like another solid value. Yeah. I do think there's a bigger conversation about what gets greenlit you know, versus what moves forward versus what doesn't. And, you know, I think there's been a lot of changes going on in the industry that have actually, you know, nothing to do with the strike. Um, But we've, we have seen, I think there, there, I think there was a heyday of more quote unquote niche content that allowed many of us to feel seen and, and to see stories that rarely get the opportunity to to get on but a lot of what we're hearing now is there's kind of a move back to this kind of broader appeal Mm. uh, kind of tv which is is scary because broad appeal also feels like it's code for for not you (laughs) yeah (laughs) no that makes a lot of sense and like it's so surprising to me because like like you you all said like there have been like like really great stories, you know, um, with great representation and you name, you all name some of the, you know, the projects that are out now, but I'm thinking of just like, you know, uh, things like Atlanta, right. That did, I feel like in my mind were really, you know, popular and told like real stories of like black joy, but it's funny to me to hear you all say that, like, and I know this like to be true, but I'm just so surprised. Like the media still struggles to live up to more than just a few of the goals that like, for instance, like you all and Ty have set out and it's storytelling. Like it's like they can hit one point, but maybe not all of them. I'm assuming that you all are okay with that and that you all are organizing to change that. Um, And you want to see stories that go further as writers return um, and new shows are pitched. But besides like independent media, like what in your mind needs to happen in order for like those goals to be reached? I think we are, we're just in such a turmoil point in the country, but also in this industry where literally the sky is kind of falling. Hmm. I do think that this would be a great time for the studios to take some big swings. 
see what people want to see. But to to Wall's point, I think the reaction instead has been to retreat to the tried and true. Mm. So, you know, I don't know. We see big networks up for sale. Like, I'd be interested to see if Byron Allen does buy ABC, what kind of programming ends up there. But right now it's in the hands of Disney, who Bob Iger has already said, I'm going to be quieting the culture wars. Mm. So um, at this point, I'm not trying to sound doom and gloom, but (laughs) I just feel like we have to hold on until the storm is over. Okay. Um, but that doesn't mean that we're not that we're gonna stop trying. Like, okay. <laughs> there's a lot of I have I have a couple pitches right now that like talk about stories in the global south and like uh, pe- just people of color being being badass taking names. So you know we'll keep pitching them and we'll keep trying to sell them and get them over the finish line. And it's always it's always so difficult to get a show made. That's what I I think. You know if you're Donald Glover with you know, of 30 Rock and all those other things under your belt, then things open up. And there are a number of us, you know, there's Ava, there's, you know, Taika Waititi. There are a number of us who have a little bit more leeway to get things on the air. So um, I don't think it's going to be a desert, but I don't think we're necessarily going to see like a, a flood of amazing programming right now. Okay. That's good to know. Uh, to all, you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I mean, as Angela said, it's hard, period, trying to sell something and and taking it all the way to the finish line. But uh, I think, I mean, the challenge is, look, we can't make, you can't force anyone to buy anything. Right. People are going to buy what they're going to buy. I think the way, really, as writers, all we can do is, is, and this is something I tell myself all the time, also just to kind of drown out the anxiety is just, write what you love and that passion will take you through. Um, and then meanwhile, you know, at Ty, I think we do a lot of work in trying to build allies and allyship within the studios and with the executives. Um, so building up, you know, an appetite to, to, uh, to understand the stories that we want to tell. Um, but yeah, I think you just got to keep plugging ahead. That's, you know, this industry is tough. You just got to keep plugging ahead and moving forward. Yeah. And for consumers of media like me who go through, who have gone through points in my life where I feel like they're, I see myself really well represented on screen. And there's like a ton of shows like in the 90s. And then you kind of go through like maybe five and six year droughts. It seems like that seems to be the cycle of like some good programming. And then we they kind of back up from it. And then you might see like flashes in the pan later on down the line. So thank you for the 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 forecast of the the doom and gloom about the show. Because <laughs> <About the> <laughs> now I know I'm not missing. I won't be missing much. But you know, I wonder if you could talk about like what are you optimistic about? Like what are some things you're looking forward to coming off this like historic strike? But like even thinking like five, ten years down the line, like what are you all like looking forward to or optimistic about, if anything? In the, in the entertainment industry? I do think that we are going to see in the long term, I do think we're going to see better stories, more inclusive stories coming out. Um, I think that, you know, as these streamers realize that, oh no, we broke a model and it's, you know, reform themselves into ad-supported cable television, <laughs> they're going to see that um, inclusive stories make money. Like, um, mm-hmm. The, what was that? A year, year or two ago, McKinsey Report came out and said this industry leaves ten billion dollars a year on the table every year just by not telling black stories. I read that too. Yeah. One community, yeah. So you know, report after report comes out and tells them like these are the stories that are going to make you money. They just haven't started to believe it yet. I do think though that some of these allies that we're working with now who are at, you know, the VP, the SVP level, they're going to get up to the highest ranks where they're going to start being able to green light things. And um, things will change just at a much slower pace than we would like them to. Yeah. I think that's particularly exciting too, you know, that a lot of the execs are, are, you know, are progressively moving up the ranks and, Hopefully, we'll get into the place where they can really make some impact. Uh, one other thing I'm excited about is really kind of the, it feels like there's, 
a new kind of radicalized generation mm-hmm. that's coming out of this hot labor summer. And it's not just Hollywood, but really across the board, it feels like there's this really growing sentiment that workers need to share in the wealth that we're creating for all these companies. And so that that's really exciting to see. And hopefully there will be some sort of reckoning and change in, in how corporate America works and what they're demanding from folks um, and what folks are getting. Yeah, you know, that reminds me of your question about AI and whether or not the writers um, deal on AI as pattern for Teamsters and other laborers. It, it's, it's stressful that it needs to be looked at in that way, honestly. Mm-hmm. There should be legislation about AI. And when you look at the actors, how is it not a basic human right that an individual owns their likeness and their voice? Right. That These are larger governmental issues and questions that need to be addressed on a governmental level. And it's sad that we're looking to the Writers Guild <laughs> and to SAG to break the ground on these things. But that's where we are at the moment. So I hope that they do provide some sort of foundation, some sort of groundwork for other other laborers. But we do have to come together as the people because the government is clearly not up to the task in this moment. Yeah, I totally agree. It seems like the government's always like behind with like technology um, and being able to like rein it in and kind of already runs the muck and then they try to rein it in later. I mean, even in, with the Teamsters that I mentioned, I do a lot of organizing work in Tennessee and, you know, they put forward uh, legislation, you know, and lobbied against, um, you know, the platooning bill that would have said you could have one driver in a, in a semi-automatic truck and have 18 trucks behind that with no drivers. Um, and we had to make the case about safety and everything else. But it seems like those are happening in like a piecemeal way. And to your point, Angela, it's like past time for like them to like just deal with like AI comprehensively across all sectors and, and just ensure that like people like, you know, have the rights that, you know, we should around that. So yeah, we're all fighting the good fight, I guess. Um, But um, things definitely should be different. And I'm glad that you're optimistic that, you know, people are having like some, some, some sort of like class conscious reckoning right now. Um, And I think it's been building in my, in my mind, you know, for the last, you know, 10 to 15 years. Um, But, you know, we are living in like, you know, really expensive times, really dire times for a lot of people, but also like uh, really exciting where it seems like, you know, I think what's the quote of like Audre Lorde, like the old world is burning and the new world is struggling to be, you know, born. And so I definitely feel like that's like the moment that we're in right now. And because of organizing like the the work that you all are doing mm-hmm. is like pushing that forward. And so thanks so much for all the work that you've done and inspiring um, so many people to stand up. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really proud to be a part of it. Any other things you want us to know that you want people to know about the work that you do or, um, you know, issues? It doesn't ha- even have to be necessarily around the strike. Anything else that you feel like we didn't cover? just want to give you an opportunity to have last words. I, I, I mean, I think if any last word, I just think that uh, this industry is tough. Like, but, you know, at least to other writers out there, you know, just do what you love. It's it's worth it, you know, despite all that, despite all the struggles and the hoops you got to jump through. It's it's still a great industry and there's opportunity to be had. Yeah, and just underscore your closing point, Bianca, about um, a new day trying to break through. And that is the moment that we're in. And it, it, is, it, it is easy to look around and like, everything is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) But also like everything's on the table to be changed and to be challenged. And so now is the moment to push in for everyone on the, the thing that they are passionate about, whether that be the environment or maybe it's gun control or maybe it's writing your stories, you know, push in on that thing that gives you passion. And this is the moment that everything can change. 
I'm so glad you said that because actually I was just thinking like I'm an organizer. I'm all about next steps and like how to, how to activate. I'm just wondering like what can like us as consumers who like are not a part of the Writers Guild of America or maybe not in the entertainment industry. What are ways that we can support like the change? Because I feel like it's something that like we all want to see. Is there anything that we can do as consumers yes. besides, of course, stand on the picket line and you know be in solidarity? <laughs> Is, yeah, what are other things that we could do? We did get a lot of solidarity. We did get a lot of people just showing up to walk with us, and I, yeah, I really appreciated that. All the people of the writers still appreciated that. In terms of like historically excluded writers, historically excluded content, I cannot stress enough: push play, <laughs> like. like Tyrone came out and like people didn't watch it. Like, I mean, I don't know. The streamers lie with their data all the time. So maybe, maybe everybody watched it, but like we, it, it, it is very, very difficult to get these projects made on a streamer or in a theater, buy a ticket, show up. Even if you don't go, I, (laughs) I have definitely, Seeing a movie that I was like, oh, that's too scary. I'm not going to see it. But did I buy a ticket? Yes, I did. I bought a ticket. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if, show up to what you want to see more of. That's great advice. Yeah. Twal, you have anything to add? I mean, I, I, that was literally what I was going to say, too. And and talk about it. Crow about it. Yes. You know, social media or to your friends. Like, it, Social media has actually democratized fandom a little bit um, in a way. And they're fans are, are are able to be much more vocal and have a lot more power, I think, now than they ever did before. Um, so it's, it makes it that much more important to be vocal about the shows that you love and why you want more of them and you know, watch them and talk about them. Yeah. Watch them and talk about them. I love that. You heard it, folks. Press play <laughs> and get online and talk about it. That seems easy enough. My thanks again to Angela Harvey and to Wal Pena Cosset Jr. for joining me. If you'd like to learn more about Think Tank for Inclusion and Equity, there's a link in the show notes. Black Work Talk is published by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights. If you haven't already subscribed, be sure to do so to catch future episodes when they drop and leave a review wherever you listen. You can support the show by becoming a monthly patron for as low as $5 per month at patreon.com slash blackworktalk. Executive producer for Black Work Talk is Ziomara Carpeno, and Josh Elstro is our producer. I'm Bianca Cunningham. 